0: Every four years, the White House orders a review of military compensation. Last week, the request went out to the Secretary of Defense for the quadrennial military compensation review. This one asks DOD to look into challenges for military families. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked about the request with Military Officers Association of America's Vice President for Government Relations and a retired Air Force Colonel, Dan Merry.
1: We're we're very encouraged by the president's recognition of some of the family challenges, things like um, child care um, and all the things that go into supporting um, families and uh, spouses, unemployment and those kinds of issues. So we're glad to see those being addressed.
2: The White House memo requesting a review of military compensation specifically mentions evaluating how dual income households affect military pay. How does that work?
1: We will need to better understand exactly what the president means by that and how that shift towards dual income households and unique factors affecting military household incomes, how that might require structural change to include the development of a new benchmark for military compensation. It's a little scary to think about, including a spouse and a spouse employment or spouse salary to be considered in the context of a military compensation. I know that we already have some aspects of family compensation with housing, especially there's a with dependent rate and a without dependent rate, but I would hope, hopefully they're not going to be looking at a with dependent basic pay or a without dependent basic pay. Because that's kind of what this alludes to—is they're going to use that to see how to restructure compensation.
2: In the last couple of years, it looks like the Defense Department has made an effort to roll out programs to support military spouse employment. I wonder if that's what they're looking to do.
1: It could be. We would hope so. Uh, there's a lot of there's been bills put forward, work opportunity tax credit, which may or may not solve enough of the problem. But at the end of the day, it's just a cultural decision made by many employers that when they hire a spouse, they know intuitively they're going to lose that person in two or three years. But in reality, the, the staying power and the uh, length of time people stay with companies anyway isn't much better than that. I don't have the facts at, at hand, but I, I've heard many different times that more and more people are willing to move now from jobs. It's not like it was many, many years ago where you stayed with a company for 30 years. So I think we're looking for anything that can help our spouses be seen as a value added to their team.
2: And how about the basic allowance for housing? It looks like housing costs continue to be a struggle for service members. BAH is supposed to cover 95% of housing costs. Is that enough?
1: That's another good question. And it's certainly topical because there's a lot of challenges with housing right now with availability and the cost going up and inflation. We hear that, but we don't have the data specifically. In relationship to generally, if there's a housing assessment, and it's, that, would be the 100, that would be 100%, but they're getting 95%. The message we're sending to people is, we ask you to give 100%, but we're only going to give you 95% of your housing allowance. Some of the modeling would show that people will find cheaper places to live so that they live within, within their BAH. The problem with this, they're further away from their station or base, and they end up being in neighborhoods that aren't as good. To get the right school districts and to get close to work, they're probably paying a lot more out of pocket, up to about $200 on average.
2: And how about basic needs allowance? Does it do enough to cover junior enlisted members with families?
1: Well, we sure think there is more they can do. And I'm looking forward to, and we're all looking forward to them taking a look at this. The House version of the basic needs allowance does not include the housing allowance. Therefore, more people will qualify for it. The Senate wants to make sure that it does include BAH, which would reduce the eligibility and cost less for the government, but it might be missing quite a few of those people who are still food insecure. I think this is a great opportunity, and this is what the QRMC is supposed to do, get, get the um, analysts on, on board and figure out exactly what the impact is.
2: Has the current economic climate created a situation where more service members are needing food assistance?
1: Well, I can tell you, I've served 34 years and I came in in 82. And I I know that there were there were pantries and churches and clubs that helped people get by from time to time. It was pretty much masked. It wasn't widespread, but it wasn't in the news and it wasn't on social media because we didn't have those things back then. But you get a picture of a couple of soldiers getting out of their car and walking into the pantry to walk out with boxes of food to take back to their families, that just leaves an indelible um, image for a lot of people.
2: Can you give me an example of how a service member might end up in that food insecure profile?
1: Generally speaking, they'll be younger junior enlisted. And believe it or not, we have junior enlisted people who have three or four kids. And so by the time you take all that into account, or even just with two kids for an E3 and it's kind of when we ask people to join the military, they might be a little bit older, they might be 25, they might have two kids, um, and they want to come in and serve. They want they want health care, they want security. And at the end of the day, that might be a little bit too much for them.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between compensation and retention. How does that play out?
1: Right? You know, they're related. Right now, retention is is basically okay. Uh, but it, But it could be it could be worse if we keep getting less and less of the recruits because now the people on station are doing less, are doing more with less people, of course, for help. I think the, the biggest impact they could make in a negative way would be to tweak the pay table. And they're talking about adjusting the pay table. If they put more money up front to try to encourage people to come in, the people at the middle or the senior ranks are going to see that as a shift of money to the front at their expense. And that might be right at the decision point where someone's thinking about their eight or ninth year ten, uh, tenure that they may not stay. They may um, that might encourage people to get out.
2: Now, in the last compensation review, they looked at the possibility of changing military pay away from the current system and making it look a little like a regular civilian salary without the tax shelters. What happened with that?
1: Yes, there's a lot of reasons. It's basically hard. They asked a lot. Of, of that QRMC, and it was quite difficult. They spent a great deal amount of time looking at a single salary option. And at the end of the day, it was complicated because how do you factor in housing allowances? If you have a housing allowance and you roll it into a salary, does that become part of their retirement? It's nobody's intention to give you a housing allowance now and then let you have 40% of that or 20% of that for the rest of your life because that's how we changed your, your salary. I will tell you the biggest reason, of the the complication of this, in the report, and there's four volumes in that report, Senate laid out some rules. They said, you need to review this and do all the things you need to do to think through this and look at some alternatives, retirement systems. After reviewing four of those retirement systems, they couldn't apply any of those particular models into our system without reducing pay to the member's. The Senate gave an edict when they did this um, request for the for the salary review is one of the rules is you can't uh, reduce the members salaries and all of the options they looked at would have reduced their salaries.
0: Retired Air Force Colonel Dan Mary, vice president of Military Officers Association of America, speaking with Federal News Network's Alex Lohr. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. In order to know whether they get a fair price for something, the armed forces need to know the cost of making it. That's where the cost estimating and discovery part of acquisition comes in. For her work at the Air Force, my next guest has won this year's Defense Acquisition Workforce, one of those awards, and she's the second in this week's series of interviews with awardees. She's now a branch cost lead for the Air Force at Hanscom Air Force Base. We welcome Stephanie Quintal. Ms. Quintal, good to have you on.
1: Thanks
3: for having me.
0: Now, you just joined this unit at Hanscom, but at the time of the award, you had a different job. Tell us about that.
3: Sure. So I'll kind of give you a little bit of background of where I come from and what I do now. I studied mathematics in college. I got a bachelor's from UMass Lowell. Basically a math nerd my entire life, puzzles, logic, the whole thing. I got a job out of college actually writing textbook math equations. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't totally for me. I'm definitely more of a social type of person. That wasn't kind of a job that fit what I wanted forever. So I went back to school. I got a master's in math at UMass Lowell. And at the time I was kind of looking for a job that would allow me to be part of a team, but also use my math skills. And I found the air force. So I started as a contractor. I was a contractor for about a year. And then moved over to the civilian side of the house, all on Hanscom. I was a trainee. So I did three years in a trainee program and landed in Kessel Run. So what Kessel Run was is it's the Air Force's first organic software factory. And it's basically all out of Hanscom Air Force Base. And what we did was we started up the first organic factory in downtown Boston, And the reasoning there is to kind of think a little bit outside of the traditional government work and figure out how we can hire and retain better software acquisition talent. And I was a founding member there. So I was there for four or five years. And then this past June, I had an opportunity to move into a different branch. And now I work as a branch cost chief for... ITAS, which is Enterprise IT as a Service. And what we do is support the Air Force IT network connections to over 750,000 airmen and guardians. So definitely two different things, but like so cool on both ends.
0: But the, I guess the tying theme is that you try to figure out what things ought to be priced at based on what the cost inputs
3: are? Basically, what I do is I collect data from SMEs and apply a model to predict programs' future costs. So many people ask why we need cost estimating in the Air Force, and I could go on and on, but to keep it short, we help leadership make strategic decisions in not only our budget year, but our future years. So something that is like a huge part of my job is I am in charge of basically submitting a POM or a program objective memorandum and what that does is that collects inputs on a program. We we're able to take those inputs and basically put a cost model to decide how much funding we're going to need, not only in this year, but the way that the Air Force works is we're looking way out, right? And how we can allocate funding for resources and requirements through future years.
0: And does this draw on your mathematical skills beyond simply addition and subtraction?
3: Yeah, of course. And that's kind of like the fun part of the job, right? Like, I always tell the people I work with, the data you give me only helps the cost model, right? The better the data I get, the better my cost model can be. And so there's four main types of cost estimating. So the first is an analogy. So this is used normally early on in cost estimating. So what we take is a analogous program, maybe something similar in design or operations, and basically apply what we see for costs in a previous program and apply it to our new program. The next one is my favorite as a cost estimator. That is a parametric relationship. And what that does is that uses regression or some sort of statistical model to develop a cost estimating relationship with one or more independent variables. So that is where like my math weakness comes in. And I'm able to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole and see what I can come up with. The third one is engineering. So that is what I honestly use and see the most. So that's built from a bottoms up. So that's like, we're drilling down at a very lower level and basically summing all those parts together. The challenge there is we have to know what those bottoms up, like what the lower levels are in order to create a cost model there. And then the fourth is actuals, which is we've already seen costs for this. We know exactly what it's going to cost and we can apply those.
0: We're speaking with Stephanie Quintal. She is a branch cost lead for the Air Force at Hanscom Air Force Base, and you've been doing this a while. You are the recipient of one of this year's Defense Acquisition Workforce Awards to civilians. What do you think you did that netted this award?
3: So my award was for contributions as a founding member of Kessel Run. The Kessel Run mission is to deliver war-winning software our airmen love. And kind of think a little bit outside of the box to how we can be better at developing software for the Air Force. So what I did was provided a strategic vision for over $2 billion of requirements across three product lines for Kessel Run. Had a ton of cost estimating updates and enabled several dozen contract awards for 75 external and internal teams supporting over 10,000 users for the Air Force.
0: So that was basically then a matter of labor cost input?
3: Sure, yeah. Uh, Mostly labor cost input. The challenge there is when you don't know what you're estimating, it's really hard to estimate, (laughs) right? You don't don't know what you're buying, so you don't know what it's going to cost. So what we did is as we stood up teams in Kessel Run, I basically tracked all the manning requirements. So as people were coming in and falling off these small internal and external teams, I was tracking how many people were working those teams and what that skill mix looked like. So for example, let's say product A needs a program manager, two developmental engineers, and a designer. And that lasts for eight weeks. But after eight weeks, maybe the product is at some point where an engineer may be able to fall off, right? So kind of tracking what that manning looks like over time and developing a cost model for a ramp up, a steady state and a ramp down and what those labor rates look like, how many people are on each team allows for a better cost model for a a dev team and how much that costs.
0: So which method was that of the four then? Would that be engineering?
3: Sure, yeah, that's engineering. You're ready to be a cost estimator.
0: (laughs) Well, I've been hearing and writing about this stuff for 30 years, but I'm not sure I could actually do it myself. But is there anything that you learned, say, in cost estimation and ultimately price evaluation of software development? And I imagine this was Agile and all of this. It was Kessel Run. Does that apply to hardware or other services?
3: Yeah, it's more so like the forward thinking, I think is the best thing I've learned is just thinking outside of the box and kind of knowing that maybe you don't know what you don't know. And I think that's important, but thinking outside of the box and figuring a way to estimate things and, you know, leaning on other people that might be better, leaning on other cost estimators that might know more is super helpful. I know we've had a ton of people reach out to Kessel Run, mostly in the cost estimating and just asking, hey, how did you do this? How did you estimate a dev team? Do you really know what you're estimating? Things like that and being able to help each other because sharing knowledge across branches is so valuable.
0: Now, you look like one of those younger or earlier career people that agencies across the government say they want. Certainly, you've got the enthusiasm and knowledge for this. What's your long term goal here?
3: My long-term goal is to keep providing what I can to the Air Force in terms of cost estimating, knowledge, and expertise. I love working with trainees. I love mentoring people. That's kind of one of my favorite parts of my job is having someone who might be new to the Air Force but has a fire for math. And I'm like, you know, like, that was me. So anything I can transfer to other people, I love to help out. And that goes with other functionals as well. I can't tell you how many times... People pull me aside and they're like, hey, can we talk about the Palm or hey, can we talk about cost estimating? What do you do? And it's like the more I can give back to the Air Force, I'm all for it. And um, just keep learning and keep growing.
0: Well, someone that is reveling in the palm process, that's a rare cat also, I would say, because most people want to get away from it as far as they can. And it sounds like to you, mathematics is more than just a way of calculating things, but kind of a reference mode of thinking.
3: Sure, definitely. I've always loved math. I am definitely, science and math have been something I think I've been naturally blessed to be good at. Growing up, I was always good in math in school. And out of college, I was kind of thinking what I wanted to do. And I thought about possibly doing like academia teaching. And the best part of my job is the fact that I can look back and know that I'm making a difference and seeing what I do and knowing that it, you know, brings capability to the warfighter. Like that's kind of what keeps me fired up in my job and, you know, wanting to do better and wanting to give back more.
0: Well, I think the Air Force ought to get you out to Palmdale ASAP to get on that bomber. Yeah. (laughs) You'd go if they sent you. Of course. Stephanie Quintal is a branch cost lead for the Air Force at Hanscom Air Force Base. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thank you so much for
0: your time. And she's also a recipient of a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award this year. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tomorrow, we'll speak with another Hanscom civilian who's the go-to guy for software acquisition. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your shows. The House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress went out of business with the conclusion of the 117th Congress. But the committee's long list of recommendations will continue under a new subcommittee. The former Select Committee Chair, Washington Democrat Derek Kilmer, discussed this in a Q&A with Chamber of Commerce Executive Vice President Tom Quadman at a chamber event last Friday in Washington.
4: About every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes things aren't working the way they ought to, and they create a committee to do something about it. Uh, the most recent iteration was called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which makes us sound like we were the IT help desk, uh, but we were nicknamed the Fixed Congress Committee. Uh, And our mission, simply put, was to make Congress work better for the American people. Uh, In that regard, we looked at a number of issues. How does Congress as an institution recruit, retain, and have more diverse staff? How does Congress have uh, have a more civil and collaborative culture? How do we deal with issues like schedule and calendar? And among the issues we looked at that I know is germane to today's summit is,
0: how does Congress use technology? As his high-tech wireless microphone faltered, Kilmer said Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology.
4: To solve 21st century problems.
0: Kilmer said a number of the committee's 202 recommendations focused on Congress's technology base. Asked for an example, Kilmer
4: said, One of the challenges Congress faces is that Members of Congress, on average, sit on 5.4 committees and subcommittees. If you look at uh, pre-pandemic, back in 2019, Congress was in session for 57 full days and 58 travel days. By and large, all of your committee meetings are packed into those full days. And unfortunately, currently, there is no system to de-conflict that schedule, which is why, if you're watching C-SPAN. First, you have too much time on your hands. But if you're watching C-SPAN and you notice that there's not people in their committee, it's not that they're blowing off work. It's that they're probably in three or four other committees at the same time. So one of our recommendations was if you want Congress to function, you need to have the committee's function, which means members need to be able to be in committee for something other than showing up right before it's their time to speak, giving five minute speech, and then peacing out. So one of the recommendations we made was to do what basically every college and university and high school in the country does, use technology to de-conflict the schedule. Does not sound like rocket science. One of the other recommendations that we made was to use technology better, so that as an institution, Congress is, is better capable of making policy based on evidence, not just based on ideology. Uh, we recommended establishing a new commission on evidence-based policymaking within the legislative branch. That is, you know, having the institution onboard things like data, data analytics so that the institution can make better decisions for the American people, I think is really, uh, uh, is really very important.
0: Kilmer also cited the topic of constituent help local voters come to a member of Congress with, say, a problem with Veterans Affairs or Social Security. The member reaches out to an agency and perhaps gets a matter resolved.
4: So what you have is, in essence, 435 independent contractors getting their own individualized data from their constituents. But there is no use of technology to aggregate that data to say, hey, wait a minute, turns out this issue with the VA in Kilmer's office was also a problem with the VA that Fifty other offices got calls about, hey, that is a systemic problem, let's go solve that as a policy problem, not just as a casework problem. So one of our recommendations was to use technology to aggregate casework data so that we can actually solve some of the problems facing our constituents, whether it be with the VA, with immigration, with the IRS, or any other federal agency. We made recommendations also about how Congress as an institution onboards technological innovation. We've proposed the establishment, and they've just stood it up, of a congressional digital service to actually look at how Congress onboards new innovation. I was a member of Congress. I was a new member who came in in January of 2013. I was, upon my swearing-in, handed a pager. (laughs) I am not quite sure what to do with it. You know, the institution needs to be more modern. That's not just about how we communicate with ourselves or are communicated with, but it also gets at how we communicate with our constituents, how we solve problems for our constituents, and so a number of the recommendations that we made in the technological space really focused there. Beyond that, outside of the technology realm, some of the most important recommendations, and I really give credit to the chamber because it was outspoken in the importance of helping to build the capacity of the institution. It is hard for Congress to solve big problems for the American people if it has self-lobotomized. You've seen things like the elimination of the Office of Technology Assessment back in the 90s. You've seen things like the constant erosion of funding for committee staff. And as a consequence, the institution has generally the turnover. The average uh, staff member has a tenure of under three years. It is hard for the institution to develop its brains to solve big problems, in part because once you get someone who's smart enough to solve a problem, they get hired away. And so a lot of the recommendations we made, and I really appreciated the chamber's engagement on this, we're really trying to build up the brainpower of Congress as an institution so that it can solve problems. We're in a new Congress, right? So this Congress has not reauthorized this select committee. You have 202 bipartisan
5: recommendations that did come out of the Select Committee. How do you see that work moving forward, or do, you, or do you even see it moving forward?
4: Yeah, this is actually a good news story. At the end of the last Congress, our Select Committee, as it was expiring, made two recommendations. One, it said Congress should look at how it modernizes and look at reform issues as a matter of course, not waiting every 20 or 30 years to do it. So what we recommended was, at the very least there should be these types of reform committees every three or four congresses. Beyond that, though, we also made a proposal to create a new subcommittee under House administration to focus on implementation of these 202 recommendations. Now, here's the good news. 45 of them have been fully implemented. There's another 70 or so that are in the process of implementation. But it requires paying attention to that, right? The, you know Congress is a slow-moving machine, and having at least some folks were assigned the task of putting eyes on the implementation, I think, is really important. To the credit of the new majority, they took that recommendation and ran with it. So a new, committee, a new subcommittee under House admin has been established, focused on congressional modernization. It's going to be chaired uh, by Stephanie Bice from Oklahoma. I will serve as its ranking member, and uh, I'm excited about that because I think we will, we will continue to put the pressure on to ensure forward motion of some of these reform ideas. One of the reasons why we wanted to make sure we were having this summit was to bring the private sector together with the public sector, figure out
5: what some of the solutions are, but also to make sure that we can make government IT modernization a priority. We're going to now have discussions on, which sort of started yesterday, between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden on, okay, how do we deal with the debt ceiling? But below that, how do we
4: deal with spending? Mm-hmm. So. Is IT modernization for the government, does that have a space in this conversation? I sure hope so, because I think there are areas where Congress can make investments in the use of technology, where you both improve the efficiency of the government, you improve transparency within the government, you address... Real vulnerabilities around cybersecurity, which I think are certainly an issue for congressional offices and for federal agencies. Some of these will require investments, and I think over the long haul, and the FAA example is a good one because when you had that cybersecurity when you had that technological issue, it cost a lot of money. It had a huge impact to, to business, to travelers. Some of these investments will save us enormous money down the road. And I think IT modernization needs to be part of the discussion around how to make government more efficient and more effective for the American people.
0: Washington Congressman Derek Kilmer, formerly chairman of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, now ranking member of a new subcommittee on the House Committee on Administration, speaking at a U.S. Chamber of Commerce conference in Washington. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department is telling its acquisition people to use what's known as category management to expand the use of small business. But for years, small business has argued that category management actually limits the number of vendors who can sell to the government. Here to analyze this latest DOD memo, the Professional Services Council President and CEO, David Berteau. All right, what's going on here? It's about a week and a half old now, this memo.
6: Right. Well, Tom, there's three moving parts here. One is last year, in fact, really from the beginning, this administration has been pushing for increasing the number of dollars going to small businesses, not only in general, but in particular categories, disabled veteran owned businesses, minority owned businesses, women owned businesses, et cetera. And they began to expand the ability to do that through the contracting process. And then in January, DOD released a long awaited, we've been waiting for it for about a year, It's small business strategy, and they're going through a round of discussions now promoting that with professional services council members and others. And then Friday, a week ago, DOD issued a memorandum, and it's jointly signed by the head of defense contract and pricing and the head of the small business office called Achieving Small Business Goals Through Category Management Practices. That's a pretty innocuous sounding subject line, but what it seems to be doing is to say you can get credit for tier two spend under management dollars that typically is your category management goals, you can get credit for small business contracts that aren't even issued under a category management best-in-class contract. So it's like two different processes adding up to meet the same goal. It also then would help the administration reach its goal of more dollars flowing to small businesses.
0: Well, to simplify here, if it says you can get credit for small business dollars with non-category management contracts, then it's basically saying just buy from any small business you want to, and the dollars add up.
6: The memo is quite clear. It says the achievement of these goals, that is, the goals for socioeconomic small businesses, et cetera, shall be prioritized over attainment of the best-in-class contract goals if the achievement is not possible. So those agencies or sub-agencies in DOD who would rather use their own vehicles instead of the best-in-class contracts are essentially incentivized here to do so. So what does this mean for companies? I think two questions that I'd like to know the answer to that we don't is, what analysis has DOD done of where the benefits of this new guidance are going to flow, right? And the second is, what do you do for those companies that thought Their purpose required them to get on these best-in-class contract vehicles. They spend a lot of money qualifying for those, getting through the on-ramps, waiting sometimes months or years to get on. And now all of a sudden they're told, that doesn't matter. We're not going to be using those vehicles. We'll get at whoever we want from some other way. Real big questions here that need to be answered, and we don't know what those answers are. But we've asked DOD.
0: Yes, to make an analogy, it's almost as if they were to say, well thank you all for getting on FedRAMP, but we're not going to necessarily use FedRAMP people compliant in order to meet our cloud goals.
6: You know, you've just given me something else to worry about. We'll have to check on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, They haven't done that. I'm just making the analogy to (laughs) to a program. Exactly,
6: exactly. But I'm not denigrating either goal. I think there's some worthy objectives in the small business focus that the administration has. There's some worthy objectives in category management and best-in-class contracts. But I'm worried here that the process and sort of the input objectives are going to mask and perhaps do damage to the real need, which is to get the results under contracts that you need to have in order to keep the government running better.
0: Right, because this whole program of category management, which originated you know, through the GSA, was controversial on the part of small business. And yet, here they went through the process anyway. I mean, what choice do they have to get to be on best-in-class contracts? And now you're saying, well, golly, what was all that for, if anything counts toward the small business goals?
6: And look, whenever you're putting a priority in one part of the process – You're diminishing the priority in another part of the process. And the real question is, who's analyzing these secondary effects, some of which are quite negative, either for the companies or for the customers who can't get at the people they need to get to?
0: We're speaking with David Berto, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And I want to switch gears here for a minute and talk about the debt limit extension options which none of them have been exercised yet except extraordinary measures because, you know, this is Congress and if they have till June X to reach the end of the extraordinary measures, they'll go to June X minus one day or minus two hours. So what could this mean for contractors, do you think?
6: Well, there's three things that are going on one is we're way earlier in the process in terms of the visible public attention here than we typically are right because usually we get to the point where extraordinary measures start to be exercised and the debate is months from now in terms of what does congress have to do but for a variety of reasons this is a front and center topic months ahead of time now right so the real things that contractors need to be aware of is i think three pieces one is it appears that because we got to the debt limit sooner than we expected By the way, part of the reason for that is interest rates went up, and so payment on the debt started going up in September, October, November, so we spent more money. Yeah,
0: funny how that works, huh?
6: Funny how that works. You can't raise interest for the rest of the world without also raising interest for the federal government for its own recycling of its debt. And so we're going to reach it sooner. The thing is, Tom, we're going to reach the limit here, maybe in June, maybe in July, maybe in August. At a time where there's no obvious legislative vehicle, particularly a spending vehicle, on which we would attach the debt limit extension. This is different than where we've been in the past, where typically the two have gone together. A CR and appropriations becomes the vehicle for the fight over the debt limit extension. That's not the case now. So one of the things that we're watching for is, will Congress actually try to take an action to reconnect those two that is reconnect the debt limit extension to the cr which would be the next logical budget document that we have coming forward that has actual appropriations associated that's not until september so that would require a short-term extension of the debt limit until then
0: it seems like the whole world is addicted to these large bills that have to be passed as magnets for all the shavings of everything else that the government has to do whatever happened to legislation with a single purpose this bill hereby increases the debt limit and it's one page.
6: We could certainly do that. And I, you know, there may be something that comes out of this. The battle lines that have been drawn, of course, are pretty far apart. The House Republicans are saying we're not going to vote for anything unless there's significant spending cuts. They've talked about $130 billion. That's pretty significant. The White House has said we're not going to agree to anything that has spending cuts attached to it. So, you know, There's plenty of room in the middle but it's not clear to me who's moving to the middle right but you're right congress could certainly do that typically these fights are tougher in a divided congress right it's a little easier when the same party is the majority in both houses of congress and the white house it's much tougher when they're divided and tom we've had a divided congress now for 30 years out of the last 42 so it's not as if we shouldn't know what to do here the real question though is are we going to tie this to a potential government shutdown which has happened a couple times in the past, and certainly could happen again here. And when would that occur? Probably not until October first.
0: All right. Well, then it's really then in Congress's court only at this point. But we don't know then if somehow the extraordinary measures would end, and the Treasury has to issue new debt to cover the old debt how they would allocate payments. That's really unknown, whether contract obligations, employee pension refreshment, or employee salary payment. I mean, all of these things have to be balanced.
6: Well, it's it's 12 years ago now, back in 2011, right, where we first wrestled with that question most openly, and Treasury concluded, and plenty of experts agreed with them. I'm certainly not one of them, that it's impossible to prioritize. It's not only impossible to set the priorities, it's probably difficult to actually execute them. It's not like we issue paper checks to everything where the money goes these days. So much of this is automated and electronic that it's going to be very, very difficult to manage. We've never defaulted. Uh, and nobody wants to go there. But boy, it's going to be a tricky mess to get there. And we're stuck in the middle of this.
0: Well, electronic or paper check, it's all funny money.
6: Well, we are always borrowing from the future to pay the bills due today from the commitments that were made. You know, one of the other things that was clearly in play before was the idea of a commission. Senator Joe Manchin has mentioned we could do that again. There was the Rivlin-Domenici Commission. There was the Simpson-Bowles Commission. They both came up with good ideas, but none of that was implemented. It's a much bigger problem now than it was in 2011.
0: Wasn't it Prince Metternich that said that crowns rest not on royal heads, but on debt?
6: Well, (laughs) I I haven't recalled that, but uh, I'll have to go back to my early political science assessment. But meanwhile... You know, for contractors, so you go back to 2011 and 2013. Sure. Ultimately, the impact was a sequestration, right? And there's plenty of data. We did uh, analysis there, and and PSC members know this. Contractors ended up paying about 80% of the impact of that sequestration cost. So in the end, what we have to worry about is what's the impact on the dollars that keep our companies in business and keep the government operating.
0: Or maybe it was Sherman Yellen. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout the federal technology community, if you listen closely, You may have heard tiny celebrations combined with an undercurrent of dread. This is because the House reconstituted the Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee on Federal IT, Cybersecurity, and Government Innovation. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why agency CIOs, contractors, and anybody else connected to federal technology are having this emotional swing. Well, Jason, we don't want people to have a sense of dread, but uh, let's start with reviewing what the House Oversight and Accountability did with this new subcommittee?
5: Not surprisingly, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, which changed their name, Tom, as you and I recognize from used to be House Oversight and Reform Committee. They came up with a new kind of series of of subcommittees. And and the two that really matter, if you will, to to this conversation is they created the House Oversight Accountability Subcommittee on Federal IT, Cybersecurity, and Government Innovation. Then they created the House Oversight Subcommittee on Federal Workforce and Government Operations. Now Tom, this used to be one committee when Congressman Jerry Connolly, the Democrat from Virginia, was the chairman, he decided and the folks who ran the the Democrats that ran the, the overall committee decided to combine the old IT subcommittee with the government operations because of what Connolly thought and, and you know really his background was strong on, on IT. The new Republican leadership decided to to split them up again and, and, and in many ways that really got a lot of people excited because of the role that we've seen over the last you know, so many years of, of, of technology, of the ever-changing cyber threat landscape, that having a subcommittee really focused on these areas. A lot of folks I talked to, including former staff members like Julie Dunn, she's the former staff director and senior counsel for the Oversight Committee's Government Operations Subcommittee from 2017 to 2019. She really said, this is a good thing. This is a really positive step, giving all the challenges that agencies face.
0: Well, there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat. But what do we know about the chair of this new subcommittee?
5: Well, the subcommittee chairwoman is Nancy Mace, the Republican from South Carolina. And what's interesting about her is it's maybe a little bit of a surprise that she was chosen, again, not because she's qualified or not qualified, but because she's not a name that we saw a lot of Previous years, she was not someone who stood up and yelled and screamed and and threw stuff at, at people at the at the uh, <laughs> people who testified or anything like that. But quietly, and, and this is what folks like Mike Hettinger, again another former staff director for the for the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, said she worked with on a bipartisan basis on a number of bills, including one called the Quantum Computing Cybersecurity Preparedness Act. She co-sponsored that with uh, Representative Ro Khanna from California. She also worked on the Federal Cybersecurity Workforce Program Act. Again, that got passed in May, 2022. And, and again, another example of bipartisan technology focused over previous work. But, Tom, if you dig a little deeper, which is, you know, that's what I try to do, uh, there's not a lot of other examples of her in the, in this technology, if you will, cybersecurity world. A couple of things I found. She did co-sponsor the, uh, or was the original co-sponsors of the Veterans Cybersecurity Risk Awareness Act. This basically tells VA to do a better job of educating veterans about what cyber risks around disinformation, identity theft scans, and fraud did they actually face. Another one that kind of falls in this area is the Whistleblower Protection Improvement Act of 2020. Again, would have modified certain whistleblower protections for federal employees, including with respect to petitions to Congress and, and protecting the whistleblower identity and protected disclosures. Sure. And then finally, Tom, one other one I found was interesting called the ALERT Act. This is the All Economic Regulations Are Transparent <laughs> Act of 2021. Again, this requires agencies and OIRA to really propose kind of what's the impact the legal basis for the role Uh, to really and and, and review these rules on a more periodic basis based on the potential or real significant and economic impact.
0: All right. So she hasn't been maybe as immersed daily in this for the past 15 years the way Jerry Connolly has. But... It sounds like she is aware of some of the issues. What's the reaction around the community to uh, to Representative Mace?
5: I spoke with several different people, former staff members, of course, and those folks say almost positively across the board, hey, it's great to bring this new subcommittee back, given the importance of the issues like, like cybersecurity and the risk around it and the need to promote IT modernization, innovation across government. Again, and, and then having Congressman Connolly still as the ranking member. You know, Tom, a lot of people thought Connolly may sh- stay with government operations, and the federal workforce as his subcommittee as the ranking member there. So maybe I wouldn't say it a big surprise, but maybe a pleasant surprise that Connolly decided to stick with this other uh, subcommittee. The, the other folks to talk about, we know what Chairman Connolly was focused on when he was chairman, data centers and cloud and Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act. So it's good to see, you know, Congresswoman Mace come in and, and it would be interesting to see what she is interested in. So I think there's a lot of interest to see about what some of those focus areas are. I did reach out to her staff several times and did not hear anything back. It may just be a bit too early. They may not kind of have all their plans in place yet. So I'll be interested to see how we learn more over the next couple of weeks.
0: Well, this is one of those times when the longevity of the committee staff can really come into play. That's where a lot of the expertise lies. I heard Representative Kilmer from Washington, who Used to head up the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which has sunsetted that the average tenure of a congressional staff member is only three years, about the same as an average professional football player. So a lot of, you know, knowledge goes out the door when those people leave. We'll hear from Representative Kilmer coming up next, actually. And what about this other subcommittee, the one focused on government operations and federal workforce? Is that going to be like F Troop, as in Schedule F? We
5: certainly hope not, because I think a lot of federal employees are not excited if that's happened. Though, Tom, I do have to bring up Congresswoman Mace was one of the original co-sponsors of the bill from Congressman Comer, now the chairman of the Oversight and Accountability Committee, to create a Schedule F into law. So uh, I think that Could be on their agenda. We'll have to wait and see a little bit. But uh, for the new government operations and federal workforce subcommittee, that's going to be led by uh, Congressman Pete Sessions. Interestingly enough, Pete Sessions, if you look back at his efforts around the 117th Congress, specifically the Texas Republican looked at things like simplifying the Grants Act, really improving how grants are, are, are sent out. He did co-sponsor the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2022. You know, again, a lot of co-sponsors there, 16, but he signed on from the original one. He also was part of the Fairness to Federal Contractors Act in 2021. Again, this focus on whether or not agencies could force federal contractors to take the COVID-19 vaccine or, or work or, or you know for them or not. So there's some things there that, you know, kind of... Open up, and you can see kind of what he's interested in. On the Democrat side, you see a new ranking member coming in, Kwesi Mafume, the Democrat from Baltimore or, or Maryland in this case. Another interesting, again, another Maryland or DMV, I should say, congressperson who has a very important now uh, subcommittee. If you think, if you look across the board, you have folks like Tim Kaine and Steny Hoyer, Mark Warner, now Kwesi Mafume, Jerry Connolly. They're all have. Leadership positions with committees that really impact federal employees the federal workforce and in and, and areas of federal management. So I think that's another really interesting sign to see how this group of members, again, Maryland, Virginia, DC members, are all impacting this era, this idea of federal workers and, and, and federal contractors.
0: Well, I guess we'll know more when the hearings get scheduled and what the topics are and what the questions are like. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his latest notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com.